as we sing the songs, my, the way I want to introduce this message is a little different. So I want you to think about the words that we've sung. I mean, it's Jesus. I mean, really, it's, it's Jesus that matters. It's the sound of His great name. Because of who He is, the saints feel no shame. Because of who He is, the fatherless find their rest. I mean, all of those statements are true, not because the songwriter wrote them, but simply because of who Jesus is. He makes them true. As we've worked our way through this letter to the Galatians, I mean, this is really the idea, the central thesis of what Paul has been, been driving towards as we, as we moved last week into chapter 5 into the more practical section of the letter. It's this central theme that has, has been wrought all the way through, that, that's, been, that's been brought all the way through, is that in Christ we are made free. It's not based on me. I don't find no shame because I finally figured out how to do it right. I don't find rest because I finally figured out how to get by. He's my hope. He's your hope. It's really because of Him. We don't have time to really talk about and deal with how many times the theme of Freedom in Christ has, has undergirded all that Paul has taught through the first four chapters. I'm going to encourage you in your community groups this week to, to really deal with that and think about that. I'm going to be providing just some answers to the community group leaders so that they'll at least kind of see where I'm coming from. But this idea of freedom in Christ where we lay down our our efforts and where we lay down and where we, where we take upon His yoke that is light it's the idea of all that Paul's been writing. It's what he's been working towards. And as we moved into it last week, it's the, it's the theme, the, the central theme and thesis of this whole letter. We don't want to disregard the gospel. We don't want to disregard Paul's, Paul's testimony and his claim of authority. And In fact, today, as we go through the passage, we're actually going to deal... Again, with Paul's authority, he's going to draw from that authority, and, and because of his authority, he's going to call them to listen closely to him. We can't disregard that he spent time doing that. We can't disregard that he presented to us a, a, a summary of, of the work of the gospel. We can't disregard that. Because really the, the gospel, especially the gospel, is the foundation from which Paul claims his authority. And it's the foundation from which he calls the Galatians to this freedom. Now, I presented to you a definition or a summary of the gospel as we've studied it through Galatians. I want to share it with you again so that it's fresh in your minds. The gospel is the good news that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are found in Christ, redeemed from the curse made sons of God, heirs of His promise, free to live as intended by the Creator that saved us. Listen to it again. The Gospel is the good news that through faith in Jesus Christ, we are found in Christ, redeemed from the curse, 
made sons of God, heirs of the promise, free to live as intended by our Creator. So the Gospel, Paul says in, in Romans, the Gospel is the power of God unto life. But the Gospel is not an end in itself. The Gospel is the vehicle by which God meets you. He meets you right where you're at. He comes to you in the midst of your fallenness and your brokenness and your unworthiness. He comes to you and He meets you there through the Gospel. But He doesn't leave you there through the Gospel. You see, through the Gospel, He meets you in your brokenness and He moves you to be a new person. To no longer be called a slave. To no longer be under the curse of the law. To no longer be cursed by your sin. To no longer deal with His wrath. But to be made His son and daughter. To be His child. To meet you where you are and move you to where you've always been meant to be. And see, that's really what Paul wants these Galatians to see. That's what he's calling them to. And, and the truth of the Gospel always leads to this place. The truth of the Gospel always, over and over in people's lives, brings them to this place. And Paul is pleading. He is pleading with these Galatians to be the people that God's called them to be. To live the life He's called them to live. We're going to pick it back up in Galatians 5.1. If you've got a Bible, Galatians 5, we'll start reading in verse 1. We'll make it through verse 6 today. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We dealt with this pretty heavily last week. We talked a lot about freedom. Jesus has set you free. That's the indicative statement. That's the, the statement that says this is a fact. Jesus has set you free. And the imperative command says, so be free. Jesus did this. So now you can do this. Jesus freed you, so now you can stand firm. You can be the person that God called you to. You don't have to turn again to a yoke of slavery. But what we didn't really focus on, or at least was, was mentioned and imp implied, but wasn't dealt with specifically that I want you to see before we move on because I think it's absolutely imperative. Is in this verse, in this transitional verse, Paul demonstrates to us something very important about how we move forward in our Christian life. Jesus did a work in you. Jesus changed you. You see, Jesus made you free. You didn't make yourself free. That's not what the statement says. The statement doesn't say you figured it out and you got free. You broke out of this prison by yourself. You did this work on your own. It says Jesus set you free. And what, what Paul's showing us, what Paul is beginning to demonstrate for us, is that we, in this fight for freedom, have a new motive because we have a new identity. You see, it, it completely changes who we are. Remember, we have been moved from the curse to freedom. We have been moved from slaves to sons. 
We're no longer bound, imprisoned, or or under some law. We are free. Jesus has done this work in you. It is your new life. It's the work of the gospel in a believer. So it's the work of, of God in a believer that changes you and makes you something different. It gives you a new nature. See, before Christ, this was not who we were. Before Christ, we were bound up in slavery. And I know it doesn't feel like this. I mean, I know. I, I know what it feels like. I know from our perspective, it, it certainly feels like we've got it all figured out and we've got answers and we can, we, we can make decisions on our own and we have all this wisdom and understanding. And look at our scientists. They've figured so much out. Look at our knowledge and our technology. Look at what we can do. But before Christ, apart from Christ, outside of Christ, we are slaves to the real depths of our nature. We can only ever be what our nature demonstrates we are. And the Bible clearly demonstrates that outside of Christ, our nature is fallen. And it's depraved. And sinful. And truly hopeless. I know, I know, I, I know it doesn't feel that way. I know that we don't feel limited because we see from our perspective all of these opportunities. And we live in a country that says you can be whatever you decide to be and you can become whatever you decide to become. I can tell you, no matter how badly I would have wanted it, I would have never been the star quarterback in a Super Bowl game. I'm not strong enough, and I'm not fast enough. I may, I may not have, I may have been able to work out and not been so fat. I mean, that, I could change that, but I can't change the rest of my frame. Have you ever walked up to some of these football players? Come on, I might have made it through high school, but that'd have been it. I never would have been able to be that because I was bound by who I am. I feel like I'm a pretty smart guy. I'm going to act in front of you like I'm a pretty smart guy. Let's put it like that. But I don't know enough about the law or our Constitution or our history. And you know what? I have no desire to know a lot of that stuff. I never would have been a president. It wouldn't have happened. Because I'm bound up by really who I am. You see, the truth is this. We are bound by our nature, by who we are, by our identity. Apple trees give us apples. Orange trees give us oranges. You don't walk up to an orange tree and expect to pick off an apple. Because they're bound up by their nature. The truth is that without some outside set of circumstances playing a part... These things always work this way. I mean, that's how we get plum cots and tangelos and orangelos and boysenberries. Somebody messed with it. Somebody went in and did something so that that would happen. It gave this, this, these plants a whole new identity and a whole new nature and no longer is, is a blackberry and a loganberry and a raspberry plant or bush 
simply that. They become something new altogether. And they begin producing boysenberries. If you want to know about boysenberries, you can read all about them on the internet. Just Google them. I checked it out first. Knott's Farm brings us boysenberries. Probably not the only ones now, but it's the truth. That's where it started. Actually, it started with a guy before that, but he couldn't get things to work the way he wanted to. So not not so far made it popular. And now we can have jam made from boysenberry. Doesn't that, doesn't that make you feel special? Here's something that should make you feel special. In Christ, he does a very similar thing in us. See, the beauty of this story, the beauty of our story, is that we are no longer bound by our sinful nature because Jesus Christ has come in and done a work and he has given us a new nature by which we are now free to act. You see, in Christian circles, we talk a lot about free will. But outside of Christ, our our will is bound up in our sinfulness. Our free will really comes as a result of the great work that God did in our lives. The Bible's clear. Read it. Romans chapter 3. It's all, take you some time. Go read that verse. Those verses. There is no one righteous. No one seeks God. There's a point where he talks about the death just kind of comes out of us. Because we're bound up by our nature. Christ had to come in and do this work. And everything, all of the implications and the applications that come from Paul's doctrinal section in his teaching of the gospel now starts at this point. Not a result of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done. You can be His people. And you can live a life that honors Him. You see, the truth is, is that it, it, this, this, this idea, Paul kind of just works through this idea, and that's really what the rest of these verses we're going to look at today deal with. Let's keep reading in verse 2. Look. It means listen up. I mean, that means pay attention. Listen. I, Paul. Wait, why are we listening to Paul? Because Paul's an apostle sent not from men, but from God. He's got the message. He's been given a message that's not from man, but from Jesus Christ. You see why all this memory work, I've challenged you guys to be reading it, I've challenged you to be in it, I've challenged you to memorize it. It matters because it builds on itself. We listen to Paul because Paul's the man with the message from God. He says, listen to what I'm saying. I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Some big words, scary words in a way. He's saying, he's saying, listen up, what I'm about to tell you is extremely important. Circumcision for the wrong reason. Circumcision from the wrong motivation renders Christ useless to you. That's what he's saying to the Galatians. Here's the problem. 
For those of you that haven't been with us through the this, this study, the problem the Galatians were having is that Paul had come in and preached the gospel and they believed the gospel. And then behind Paul comes these people called Judaizers and they come into Galatia and they begin to preach a different gospel and they say, yeah, Jesus is absolutely great. We love Jesus, but also you have to have this law. You have to have this Jewish tradition. You have to tag this on. And so you've got this idea that Jesus plus circumcision equals salvation. Paul's whole argument here is to point out that circumcision to these Galatians, circumcision for the wrong reasons renders Christ useless to them. Useless. So good works for any reason. Let's, let's put it more in our terms so that we can get something more out of it. Good works for our reason denies our need for Christ. Good works for the wrong reason. Let me say it again. Good works for the wrong reason denies our need for Christ and renders Him useless to us. You see, the truth is that you can plug anything into this verse when it's done for the wrong reason with the wrong motivation. Not drinking alcohol. No, we don't teach here that alcohol is a sin. It's, you know, if you can't if you can't drink a beer without sitting down and getting drunk, then you need to quit drinking beer. Beer's not evil. We're evil, and we use it for the wrong reasons. There's plenty of reasons to abstain, but beer's not the sin, and not drinking alcohol is not going to make you more acceptable to God. If you think that not cussing or not lying or not stealing or not cheating or not not whatever, whatever you can make a list of things to do, and I don't do these things. I don't do them. If you can do that and you think that in some way it makes you more acceptable to God, then Jesus is no advantage to you. It's a scary place to be. Because we live in an extremely religious culture that says you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that. And we have all of this list of things a mile long that says I can't do those things because I have to be righteous. Jesus is of no advantage to that religious person. If you're doing things, maybe in a more positive sense, hey, I showed up at church today and I get to listen to this awesome preacher. Somebody pat me on the back. That was a good one. Hey, I showed up at church today. I, I, and you know what? I, I didn't have to. I, my mom doesn't make me go. I just do it on my own now. That's good. You're adults. That's great. That's good. Maybe you're extremely spiritual. You don't just show up on Sunday mornings, but you're a part of a community group or a life group or Maybe you're a visitor to this church and you belong to some other church and you go to Sunday school classes in your church. Maybe you're really spiritual and you get two doses. Maybe you even serve in the church. Maybe you come every Sunday morning and help people set up. Or, or maybe you sit down and, and study the verses along with me so that you can sit in a community group and you can lead discussion. Or maybe, maybe, just maybe you're extremely hyper-spiritual and you're not just a person that wants to hear it once or twice, but you're downloading all the podcasts of all the superstar preachers out there because you are a righteous person. If you're doing those good things and you're holding them up to God as if in some way it makes you more acceptable, acceptable to Him, Jesus is of no advantage to you. Oh, that's scary. That's heavy. 
because we live in a very religious culture that tells us we have to do certain things. That's why this letter to the Galatians is so applicable to us today. Because they lived in a very religious culture. You think our religion is bad? Their religion, they were steeped in religion. Whether it was a pagan religion or now a Jewish religion being tagged on to Jesus, they were steeped in religion. But these religious acts done for the wrong reasons, from the wrong motive, they are dangerous and they render Christ useless to us. They shrink the beauty and the power, the majesty of the cross. They shrink Jesus because in some way we don't need Him anymore. It's easy to come to this place as a, as a new believer and think, I am a sinner. I need Jesus. But Paul's not writing to brand new believers, is he? Or people who are about to become believers. He's writing to people who have been believers for a while and have now got tripped up. And in fact, what he's about to say to them demonstrates that there is some thing that will reveal who they really are. See, on the outside, it's easy to say we're Christian and to act like Christians. In fact, if you put the religious person right next to the believer from the outside looking in, it's almost impossible to distinguish. If you had bumped into a Pharisee who was walking the streets of Jerusalem in his day, you would have thought, that guy is a holy dude. He has got it all figured out. His life is together. God must love him. And what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? You are whitewashed tombs. You are dead inside. The religious person, somebody totally different, completely different, but not because of what they do on the outside, but because, because of who they've been made to be on the inside. You see, Paul's next words, his, his, the, the next verse, he says, it, 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 it draws us to the place that sounds, sounds dangerous. It sounds like we might be able to fall away from Him, that we might be able to lose our salvation, that, that oh my gosh, I, if, if all this can be true, if, 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 if all my works and everything renders Christ useless, if, if He's of no advantage to me, then what do I do? What do I do to make sure that I don't fall away from grace? What do I do to keep from being the one that falls away? The reality is that you don't do anything. Christ has done it for you. That's the beauty of the gospel. And that's why it's so imperative that we understand it before we ever get to a place where we begin to respond. Because in this teaching, in this teaching, it becomes obvious there is a right way to respond to the gospel, and there is a wrong way to respond to the gospel. but working and trying to prove ourselves and trying to bring glory upon ourselves and demonstrate that God can accept us because of what we've done is not it. See, the truth is, is that no matter how 
well you keep your list of rules no matter how no no matter what your list of rules looks like maybe maybe you're even willing to use the 10 commandments i want to be really biblical and i'm going to keep these 10 commandments or or maybe you're you're like ah oh, that's old testament we don't need the old testament anymore you know i'm cool and i'm new i'm one of these new covenant people just as long as i do these things and don't don't worry about keeping that law i'm okay the truth is, is that they're both lies and no law, whether it's one of your own making or one that God gave us, offers hope. The law will only ever bring condemnation. And whether we recognize it or not, now whether we realize it or not, every time we put forth effort to stand in a place where we are acceptable, we are creating a law of our own. And Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it because it renders Christ useless to you. And if this is your hope in life, then you are hopeless. And you have wrought on yourself condemnation because the truth is we can't even keep our own set of rules. Really, I mean, seriously, Dick, can we always keep our own sets of rules? But be honest with yourself for just a moment. I, I recognize it in myself all the time. It's so easy for me to have a list of rules that make me feel good about what I do and what I don't do. And then I screw up. And I beg for mercy. But then I look around at the world and I'm like, ah, they don't follow my rules. They don't meet my expectations. Have you ever recognized that in yourself? And we need to spend a little time on this idea of falling from grace because ultimately we need to get this right it's been misconstrued. It's been misinterpreted. This, this passage is not speaking to a person who has truly been changed and has a new identity. This passage is speaking to a person whose only connection to Christ has always ever been their efforts and their work. Paul is writing to a people who may or may not be believers. He, they, they may never have come to a place where they've really trusted Christ. That's why in, in, in the previous chapters he says, I'm, I'm afraid that my labors over you were in vain. That's why he says to them, all the things that you suffered, were, were, were they in vain? Did you deal with this? Did you go through this in vain? You see, the truth is, is that what really finds itself out, what really shows itself is Christ knows the heart. And when it comes down to it, if the only connection you ever have to Christ is how desperately you can hold on to Him by your power and your strength and your good works and efforts, He will always slip through your finger. He will always slip through your fingers. I want to, I want to show you this. I just want to illustrate this to you. Come here, Seth. This is just standard key. Nothing special about it. It's just not on a key ring. But, but what I, I, want, I want to demonstrate to you is that, that no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I try, this, this represents me holding on to Christ by my own power. Now, I think I could take Seth, and it's not an insult, I'm just saying I think I could. Right? Yeah. I mean, if we arm wrestled right now, do you think I'd win or you'd win? I'm not trying to embarrass you, that's not the intent. But, but I asked you to do this for a reason, because I really think I could take you. You want to try it? I'm just kidding. I would, I'm, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm a teddy bear, dude. Anyway, what I want you to do is I want you to take this. I'm not going to make it easy, but I want you to take this key from me. Okay? Work at it. 
I'm 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 fighting. I, I'm dude. I'm squeezing my hands. If you guys can see my fingers, they are white, and I am doing everything I can to keep him from taking this key. But I can't do it. You see, my grip is not strong enough. Jesus Christ is always going to slip through my fingers. The truth is, I don't care how strong you think you are. Jesus Christ is always going to slip through your fingers. You can't do it. You can sit down. No matter how close you get, no matter, no matter how much you thought you were saved, no matter how good you thought you were, the truth is this. If your motive in your good efforts and your good works was ever to be accepted, it is to be accepted and close to God, then the truth is you missed the point and never were close to God. In the moment of salvation and in every day since then. And I'm not trying to condemn believers. I don't want you to feel like I'm saying, well, if you've ever struggled with this, then you're lost. It's not the idea. God's grace is even big enough for our mixed motivations. almost called us stupid, and I thought, well, I won't do that today. God's power is even big enough and powerful enough to keep us even in our false motives. But that is exactly why Paul is pleading with these Galatians. Because he doesn't want even the believers, especially the unbelievers, unbelievers need to hear this truth. You can't do it on your own. But he wants these believers, he's, he wants these people in Galatia to live in the power of God. And he wants them to recognize that they can't do it, but that Jesus Christ already has done it. He has made them new. They are new people. And as believers in Jesus Christ and people who have that new identity, they no longer have to choose slavery. They no longer have to choose sin. You know, And the reality becomes that, that, that when we face t- temptation today, temptation doesn't equate to sin. As believers in Jesus Christ, you know, we have the power to actually do the right thing. We have the opportunity to actually live in grace or live under law. As believers, Paul is pleading with these Galatians to rest in grace, to recognize that Jesus Christ made them new. In any any ways, any opportunities, any things that they do now in response to the gospel must be lived out of that. I mean, he keeps going. He he doesn't stop there because he, he really begins then to turn and give us a different perspective. He says in five and uh, verse five and six. <clears throat> For through the Spirit by faith, I'm going to stop right there. For through the Spirit, now it's easy just to gloss over that when we're reading, right? I mean, we could be reading that, we could be studying, we can we, we we could just gloss right by that. For through the Spirit. But we're here again where Paul's starting. As he talks about now how we're going to live out of this. How does he start? 
through the Spirit. The beauty of, of this gospel power, this gospel work, this, this gospel relationship is that we are not alone, but the Spirit now comes in. This Spirit is going to become extremely popular and a point of perspective in these last two chapters. But here Paul starts in this place, for through the Spirit. Hear it again. This is God's work in you. Who's the Spirit? It's God. Alive in you. For through the Spirit, by faith. Now you might say, oh, faith. Faith, that's my part to play. That's my thing to do. I can have faith. But you want to know something about faith? Faith has really absolutely nothing to do with you. Faith takes your attention and draws it from yourself to something else. It depends on something else. A faith, a saving faith, takes your attention and your trust and your, and your perspective and it removes it from yourself and puts it someplace else. Specifically in the terms of Christianity, it puts it in Christ. It points us to Christ. It causes us to, it calls us to, to depend on Him, to live in Him. I mean, we've settled this. We've talked about this through the letter of Galatians. Your faith, the maturity of your faith, the strength of your faith, the, the length of time that you've had this faith, that stuff doesn't matter so much. Or at least certainly not as much as the object of your faith. See, it doesn't matter how mature your faith is. If your faith is in something you've done, then you're no better off. The maturity of your faith, you should be maturing as a believer, absolutely, but the maturity of your faith doesn't determine how saved or safe you are. Who, depends, who, who determines that? The Spirit of God at work in you. The work of God in you. Jesus Christ, who paid that price on the cross. That's the source of this new life. Paul, he, he's desperately longing for these Galatians to learn this, to depend on Jesus alone, through faith alone, because everything else leaves them hopeless. And he says, let's keep going, he says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the, the hope of, of righteousness. Now, what he's talking about, the hope of righteousness, they're eagerly waiting for it. And what he's saying is this hope of righteousness, there's one of two ways we could look at it. One is he is talking about a future righteousness that we're going to receive, but he's already called us righteous at another point in the letter. You see, as believers, here's, here's two perspectives on our righteousness. One, when you become a believer, you are called righteous by Jesus Christ. He's, God looks at you and says, you are not a sinner, you are clean, you are righteous. That's called positional righteousness. But we still struggle with sin. I do. How about you? Yeah, we, we do. We recognize that in the days to come, in the, in the years ahead of our life, and in the day that Jesus returns for certain, this old sinful flesh that we fight with, that we struggle with, will be replaced by something new. Imperishable. Perfect. Without the stain of sin and that nature that we fight against in our flesh. 
So there's this idea that there is a positional righteousness and a future righteousness. It is as certain. It's not wishful thinking. It's confident expectation. The word hope, if you're going to take this perspective, the word hope, you should know in biblical terms, never means wishful thinking. In the Greek, it's a term that talks about certainty. It means for certain this is going to happen. It's as sure as the person who just puts someone else in checkmate and says checkmate. They don't have to extend their arm and take the king. The words checkmate in the game. It's certain who won, right? It's the idea behind this righteousness. That future righteousness is as certain as if the game has already been won. They are eagerly awaiting it. And I think that is a biblical perspective. I think that you can look at other passages and you can see that perspective of our positional righteousness and our future righteousness demonstrated. We are saved but will be saved. You see what I'm saying? There's two different perspectives we can take. I think it's a biblical perspective. But I don't think that's the only thing that Paul's referring to here. As he talks about the hope of righteousness. I don't think that he's simply talking about our righteousness. I think he's talking about the whole inheritance. Everything we have to look forward to, that's what he's been writing about in these earlier passages. That's all he's been talking about. He says that through Christ we're sons of God, and if sons, we have an inheritance waiting for us. What's the inheritance? It's not just our righteousness. It's not just a new flesh. Our inheritance is that with our own eyes, we will see Jesus. Our faith becomes sight, and the God who created us will be before us. No longer will we see through cloudy glass, but we will see clearly. The truth will be revealed to us. And all the pains and the problems and the struggles of this life will be gone. That's the hope of righteousness because a righteous person has an inheritance to look forward to. And a righteous person becomes righteous because Jesus made them righteous. That's the hope of our righteousness and that's what we eagerly await. You see, that's the beauty of this message and Paul wants these people to live in this eager expectation and eagerly looking forward to what's to come, but they can't. They can't if they're caught up with this idea that in some way they've got to keep themselves holy and they've got to keep themselves safe. And suddenly, if all your work and efforts are to keep yourself saved and safe and to sanctify yourself and make yourself more acceptable to God, then you quit looking at God and you begin looking at the works and the efforts of your life. And if they have only been your ever hope, then you are hopeless. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, if they are something you are finding hope in, turn back. Jesus set you free from that law and that curse of the law. And He says, now be free. Live and rest in this grace. See, there's a whole other perspective about our life in Christ. You've seen how pitiful it was for me to try and hold on. I even gave him the small end of the key. And I couldn't hang on. Josh, come here for just a second. Now, Josh is a big guy. I don't know if I'm going to do this or not. But this is our life in Christ. I want you to take that key. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make it easy for you. I got mechanics hands. Josh could probably take me. 
I, I think he could. And if we arm wrestled, he would beat me up. <laughs> You're not going to get it. I'm not going to let you have it. You can't have it. I don't want it. <laughs> That's the power of our life in Christ. I want you to, do you hear that? Do you understand what I'm saying? You see, in Christ, your, your, your measure of righteousness is in Him. Your acceptance is in Him. The, the, the reason that we can come boldly before a throne, that we can gather together and sing songs of praise and worship is because of Him, only ever Him. That's why I love, I, I, we didn't plan this. This was by no way, this was our work. That's why I love that we started out with this version or this song that speaks of the power of Jesus' name because it's all because of and bound up in Him. He is our hope, the source of our identity, the power of our life, our measure of righteousness. And our acceptance before a holy and righteous God. It is Jesus. And it's only ever been and only ever will be Jesus. Jesus is our way. He is our hope. Paul says that he goes on and he says in verses 5 and 6, or, or verse 6, I'm sorry. For in Christ Jesus, hear it, in Jesus, in Jesus' name, in, in Jesus' power, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Neither circumcision. This is, this is him referring to all the good and re, uh, religious works we can offer. Every good and, 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 and socially acceptable and, 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 and work and effort that we can perform that in some way makes us feel good or makes us look good to others or makes us socially acceptable. They don't matter in Christ. Circumcision, it doesn't matter. And it, I, this, this, I mean, come on. We, we have to say this. I, I've got to deal with this. This is written to a group of people that circumcision wasn't a popular thing. You know, it wasn't happening in everybody's culture. American men don't feel bad because you've been circumcised because it's not the motive of your heart to be circumcised, to be standing before God and say, look, I'm circumcised. You know it. That's not our motive. I mean, I didn't even have a choice about it. I'm sure you wanted to know that about me. That slipped out before the filter could catch it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so sorry. My wife is left with me right now. <laughs> but now that you know, my mom and dad made a decision for me. That's not what he's talking about. It's these things that we think in some way make us more pleasing to God. You know what? If you don't understand how pleased God is with you and how accepted you are and how, how loved you are, then you need to spend time thinking on the cross. 
the price Jesus paid for you, the price God paid for you, should be enough. This one's a little more hard to deal with. Because uncircumcision doesn't matter, but neither does uncircumcision. He's talking to people who had lived in pagan rituals. He's talking to people who, who all their life had worshipped other gods. He's speaking to people who are being told, you've got to do this now to measure up. He's saying neither one matters, no matter how good you've been and no matter how bad you've been. Neither of those hold any weight in Christ. Seth, last night, I can't believe that because last night I did something horrible. Last night I, my wife was gone and I looked at porn. Seth, you, you can't mean that because I struggle with homosexual temptations. Seth, I think horrible, horrendous thoughts about other people. You can't mean that. I'm going to tell you what I believe this Scripture says. In Christ, you can't be good enough, but you also can't be bad enough. Jesus paid the price. And He has made you righteous. And the beauty of it is, is that He keeps you righteous. There is a proper way to respond to the gospel. And we get a glimpse of it in this verse. We're going to deal with it more in the, in the weeks to come. He says that the only thing that matters, only faith working through love. Your faith pointed at the right object of faith. Your faith pointed at Jesus Christ. Bringing you into this place of new identity brings out something new in every one of us. Not an emotional love. Not a love for our family. Not, not some familial, brotherly love, but an agape, sacrificial, active love. It's a new motivation brought on by a new identity that comes to us through, by Christ through faith. He says, now, this is what matters. And Spurgeon, as he talks about this, as Spurgeon talks about this, he, he, he shares a story. And he says, you know, that there was a king, and, and, and that king had, had plenty of people that just adored him and, and loved him. And, and one of these people was a gardener that grew carrots. And he grew the grandest of all carrots. It's pretty simple, really, if you think about it. A carrot, really? But he loved his king and he saw this carrot and it's the grandest and, and most spectacular carrot that he'd ever grown. I, I guess it was perfectly orange and it was shaped and knotted just the right way and had just the right leaves hanging off of it. And out of his love for his king, he brings it to him and he says, I, my king, you are my only king. And because I love you so much, I want to give you this carrot. And the king is moved by this devotion, this act of worship. 
And he says, you know what? Because you have come to me giving out of your love and devotion, I'm going to give you more land. I'm going to give you an acre more land so that you can be an even better gardener. He's blown away. I, I, I didn't do this for what I could get from you. I just wanted to show you my love. I wanted to show you this devotion. I wanted to show you how much you meant to me, and this is the best thing I've ever done. I want to give it to you. The king rewarded him. And then there's this nobleman standing by, and he sees this happen. And he says, you know, I, I race horses. If you can get an acre of land for a carrot, what can you get for a horse? So the next day he brings in the most beautiful stallion he has. He brings in the most beautiful horse he has. And he, he brings him before the king and he says, King, dearest king, I love you. And I raise horses and I want to give you this horse. And the king says, thank you. He takes it and he walks away. And the nobleman's shocked. Like, I got an anchor for a carrot. And the king turns and discerns his heart and he says, you know what? The gardener who gave me the carrot gave me the carrot. But you gave yourself the horse. See, the nobleman had some poor motives. He wanted something back. But an act of faith through love is an act of worship to our King. You see, when we come to a place that we rest in grace that we stand in Him and Him alone and we recognize that we can't be good enough and that we can't be bad enough. We come to a place that we can stand in grace and we can accept that grace and we can live in that grace and we can experience this new identity. And then as we begin to act, these new motives well up in us. No longer are we seeking to please Him, but because we love Him, we want to live for Him. You see, the gospel freedom is that you don't have to earn His love, but you can live because He loves you. The proper response to the gospel is not one of works and effort, but of receiving grace and living by that motivating grace. I came across a story I wanted to share one last thing to close. I came across this a couple of weeks ago as I prepared for a funeral. <clears throat> It's an old hymn that I really began to appreciate because I've been reading and studying in this for some time and it really felt like it spoke to this passage. Nothing either great or small, nothing sinner, no. Jesus died and paid it all long, long ago. When He from His lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done. Hearken to His cry. It is finished. Yes, indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done long, long ago. Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith, doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. It is finished, yes indeed. 
finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in Him, in Him alone. Gloriously complete. The only hope we ever have had. The only hope we ever will have is Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer, believe in Him. And come and, and into this new identity and stand in His grace. If you have been a believer for a long time and you struggle with religious efforts, lay your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Father, you are good to us. We recognize our lack of worth and our lack of worthiness for this great gift that you've given us in Jesus Christ. But in it, we also recognize your great love for us and how you view us as valuable to you. I pray, Father, that you will help us to discern our hearts and our false motives and, and, and help us see how we try to stand before you, proving our acceptance. Pray, Father, that you will help us see that even the worst of the worst things we could possibly do aren't beyond your powers of forgiveness, the power of your love and your grace. Would you help us to stand in the midst of this freedom and live in a life of worship, a life of active, sacrificial love for you. Not because we have to, but because in this new identity we want to. Will you help us with these struggles? It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.